Well, the world needs more mercy, doesn't it? Today, we're back in Heart and House, which is our series from 1 and 2 Samuel. And we're talking about mercy. David is in a desperate situation. We're following his story. He's just come to this point where he gets chased out of town and Saul and his men are after him. And they were on a mountain last week and it looked as if David was getting caught. It was the end of the road. And he knew that Saul was out to kill him. But God intervenes. A Philistine attack somewhere else. Was it just coincidence? No, God's in his story. And he's saved once again. But now, unfortunately for David, Saul and his men are back. And they find themselves trapped in a cave. And they need God's mercy. There's no way of getting out. You know, sometimes I think we get a bit confused about what mercy means. Mercy is to not get what it is that's coming to you. It seems like there's no way out. The only way is an intervention, a merciful intervention. Um, this is a little bit um, of a trivial example. Okay, Bear with me. When I was 17, I did what everybody else does when they're 17, I try and learn to drive. And go through all my uh, instructor training. I get to the end and I, I come to the test and the test's going really well. I'm like, I'm really not this good a driver, but getting away with it. And then I do all my maneuvers bar one. There's one maneuver left and it's the hill start. I don't know if this is still the case, but you used to have to do three maneuvers and the third one is almost always the hill start, right at the end, okay? Now this is the easy one. I've done the hard ones. Done a little reverse park, cheeky, straight in, brilliant, first time. But this time, I've got the easy one. And I think, oh, I've nailed this. I've passed my test. And I rev up. Got my handbrake here. I rev up, I'm ready to go. Handbrake off. And I'm just going backwards. I'm not in gear. Disaster! I thought it had gone so well and I know now this means I failed. So I get to the test centre and I'm pretty much telling him I've failed. And he's like, no, no, you've passed. What he got me to do was to do the hill start again. Now that was an act of mercy because really I should have gone home with a big fat fail. You're not supposed to get a second chance at those manoeuvres. He could have got sacked. Maybe, I don't know, maybe I'm exaggerating. <laughs> but it was, I should have got a fail. I should have walked home with a fail. And I didn't. He was merciful to me. But what about, that was trivial, but what about real life examples right now? Places like Hamid Karzai Airport last week. Desperate people holding up children at barbed wire top walls. It was one Marine who took in this baby who wasn't well. I think we've got a picture of it behind me. I'm probably in your way. And they took the baby in. They weren't really supposed to be taking anyone over the wall, but the baby wasn't well. And so they took it into Norwegian doctors and 
the British Marines were helping as well. A moment of humanity, a moment of mercy. We need more mercy in the world like that, don't we? You know, we live in the most peaceful time in world history, but we still need more mercy in this broken world. I'm going to read from 1 Samuel 24. So if you have a Bible, turn to 1 Samuel 24. And I would encourage you, if you're new with us, I'm banging about on about this all the time, so you'll get used to me doing that. Uh, but I'd really encourage you to make sure that you bring a Bible along and uh, don't just rely on your phone. Don't worry if you've got your phone today, no shame. Um, but if that's you, do bring along uh, a Bible with you. I'm just checking that I've turned on this bike. Yes, Christian, you'd be so pleased with me, I turned on. Great, 1 Samuel 24, if you're there. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the desert of En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 able young men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. He came to the sheepfolds along the way. A cave was there. And Saul went to relieve himself. David and his men were far back in the cave. The men said, This is the day that the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. And David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Afterwards, David was conscience stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. Then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, my Lord, the king. When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. He said to Saul, Why do you listen when men say David is bent on harming you? This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord gave you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you, I said. I will not lay my hand on my Lord because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe but did not kill you. See that there is nothing in my hand to indicate that I am guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you. But you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me. And may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me. But my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evildoers come evil deeds. So my hand will not touch you. Against whom has the king of Israel come out? Who are you pursuing? A dead dog? A flea? May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. When David finished saying this, Saul asked, Is that your voice, David, my son? And he wept aloud. You are more righteous than I, he said. You have treated me well, but I have treated you badly. You have just now told me about the good you did to me. The Lord gave me into your hands, but you did not kill me. When a man finds his enemy, 
Does he let him get away unharmed? May the Lord reward you well for the way you treated me today. I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. Now swear to me by the Lord that you will not kill off my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's family. From my father's family. So David gave his oath to Saul. Then Saul returned home. But David and his men went up to the stronghold. David has two reasons to be desperate for God's mercy. One is obvious. David's situation itself is desperate. Saul and the army have returned. He's imprisoned in the Engedi cave and his enemies are too strong for him and his men. So there is no way out. And then here they, here they come. I hear their voices. They're coming by the cave. Someone's coming in. No way out. Israel's wilderness caves were used as tombs. And I'm sure that they would have been convinced this cave is going to become our tomb. We're going to die here and be left to rot. We don't know if this was the cave or the ones at Adullam in chapter 22 that we've already read about in the past couple of weeks when David pens Psalm 142. But it's certainly in this season and in a situation just like this, I think most likely it's this cave. It says this, Psalm 142, a mascal of David when he was in the cave, a prayer. I cry aloud to the Lord. I lift up my voice to the Lord for mercy. I pour out before him my complaint. Before him, I tell my trouble. When my spirit grows faint within me, it is you who watch over my way. In the path where I walk, people have hidden a snare for me. Look and see, there is no one at my right hand. No one is concerned for me. I have no refuge. No one cares for my life. I cry to you, Lord. I say you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Listen to my cry, for I am in desperate need. Rescue me from those who pursue me, for they are too strong for me. Set me free from my prison, that I may praise your name then the righteous will gather about me because of your goodness to me. If you ever called out in desperation like that, if you ever found yourself in a situation where you think, oh, there is no way out of this. I need your mercy, Lord. Help me. It's interesting, though, because we need to notice that the hopeful cries here are not hopeful in the same way that maybe somebody who doesn't have much faith in their life hasn't really been following God and then suddenly their plane starts coming down and they, they start shouting out, God, if you're there, help me. It's not like that. His cry is a cry that is assured. He seems to know what God's going to do. He seems certain of how God's going to respond to his cry. It seems impossible, but he sings, you will deal bountifully, generously, lavishly with me. How can he be that confident? How can people be that confident when it's so desperate, when death is coming, it's guaranteed? It's because he knows who God is. He knows that God is merciful. He knows that God is mercy. Some way, somehow, David, confident here, my merciful God will step in. He will help me. 
And there's a second reason here that David needs mercy that we might not see when we first read that text. Saul is about to catch David when nature calls, okay? Word for word, Hebrew says that he's off to cover his feet. Now, that's a euphemism. I'm going to use another euphemism to explain the euphemism. He is going to cover his feet, which means do a number two, okay? So that's what he's doing in the cave. And it's this golden opportunity. It looks like Saul is in serious trouble. What a gift. Wow. Here he is. Set up. I've got him. What would you do? All these men are saying, take him out. This is clearly from God. It's time to do it. He's on his own, doing a jobby right next to us. We can just go and get him now. He's right there. Here's your chance. Probably shouldn't use that word, sorry. (laughs) He's going to go, like, come on. This is the golden opportunity. There's never going to be a better one. If anyone deserves taken out, it is Saul, isn't it? Saul has killed a whole city of priests just because they helped David. I mean, this guy will do anything to preserve his own power and his own kingdom. But yet, David doesn't kill him. I'm going to come back to that in a moment and why he doesn't kill him, okay? But he does do something. And this something that he does is a reason for him to cry out for mercy. He cuts off the corner of the robe, his royal robe, Saul's royal robe. And by cutting off the corner, what he's saying to Saul is, I'm the true king. This is a slight on his kingship. He's saying, I am the, I'm the one who should be king right now. I'm going to show you that I could have killed you. And in doing so, cutting off your robe is to say, this robe, this royal robe, really belongs to me. You might remember back in 1 Samuel 15. Samuel delivers God's message to Saul that he's no longer going to be God's anointed. He's going to remove his kingship at some point. Do you remember what he does? Saul grabs at Samuel's robe and he tears it. And when he does that, Samuel responds to him and says, you are tearing the kingdom in two. In other words, it was a power grab. It was, don't leave me, prophet Samuel. Because when you do leave me and you've left me with this word, I know that that is God's voice speaking over my situation. I'm losing the kingdom. I don't want that. I don't want to lose my kingdom. I don't want to lose my throne. I don't want to lose my robe. I'm going to grab on with all I've got. And he says, look, you're ripping the kingdom, the kingdom of God, Israel, in two by doing this. And here, what David is doing is similar. He's, he's kind of grabbing at power before he's ready. That's why his conscience is stricken, verse 5. David knows while Saul is still on the throne, he is not to impatiently grab hold of power before God's time. And it's something that we often do. There's an opportunity presented to us and we think, now's my time. I'm going to go for it. It's obviously from God. I'm not even going to pray about it. It's so obviously from God. Because, like, it's, I mean, he's right there. I'm just going to take him out. Is this a gift? 
got to keep inquiring of the Lord as it keeps repeating through 1 Samuel. Keep going to God. Is this the time? Well, no, it wasn't for David right now. But because he was stricken in heart, it reflected who he was. It reflected that he was actually after God. His conscience was about doing the right thing before God and not being content with just pleasing the people around him. Often, I think, we take the approval of the crowd to mean that we're doing the right thing before God. But that is not always true. And we must be careful and seek the Lord. We've got to see what is it that God wants for us. And here is David wanting to have a clear conscience before God, to be without a hint before him. That is what it is to fear the Lord. You see that David is not content with the voices around him. He's not content with the little white lie that nobody noticed. He's not content with the little bit of exaggeration that he put on something. Do you know why? Because he's far more concerned with what God thinks than what he gets away with, what it looks like around him. That is what it is to follow God to live for God above anyone or anything else. To have a heart after God. Don't we want a heart like David's? I hope you know that feeling, that feeling of being conscience-stricken. I hope you know how it feels to not quite fully do the right thing before God and turn to God and say, oh, Father, I'm so sorry. Lord, I'm sorry that I did that. I'm sorry that my heart was in the wrong place there. Nobody else has noticed, but Lord, I've grieved you. This was a kind of wilderness temptation going on here. So from chapter 22 to chapter 25, what we'll see repeated again and again and again is this coupling of good and evil, which is interesting, isn't it? Because if you think back to Genesis 2, there's a tree in the garden of good and evil. And the the one command to Adam was not to pick from it. Here, the craftiness of Satan is at play. Satan doesn't just work on brute force and violence, but he sets traps. He's setting a trap here to make David like Saul. In fact, I'd go further than that. He's setting a trap to make David like Adam. Satan will give you all you want in life if, if it means that you compromise your devotion to God. And he might even make it look like it's a good thing. But is it leading you away from God? Is it leading you away from intimacy with him? In Peter Lightheart's brilliant commentary on this passage, he says, The temptations that David faced while in the wilderness were Adamic temptations. Temptations like Adam. He was tempted to impatience to seize the forbidden fruit and take a juicy bite. 
One of David's chief qualifications for kingship was the fact that he resisted these temptations. The question we must ask today as God's church is this. Are our choices Adamic or Christ-like? If you're not a Christian and you're wondering what Christianity is all about, hear this. It's about weak and desperate people who recognise that they need mercy. We need mercy in situations like in the cave when we realise that death surrounds, that we have committed the transgressions that lead to death. When we're in a dark place and we recognise that we too are part of the problem and we need Christ, we need the solution in God. When we fail, when temptation gets the better of us like it did here for David, yes in a smaller way than it could have been, but in a, his temptation still got the better of him. And we do... And we will get it wrong. All of us. We will all have moments like this. But when those moments come, we need to know that God's response is compassion and mercy. He looks upon you and he sees your cry for mercy and he responds with love. That's the heart of the Bible's big story. Not strong people behaving well. Not religious people performing rituals, but desperate people crying out to God and receiving new hearts. Our part of the deal is simple. Receive. That's where it starts. And that's where it continues. We receive. All that we receive is in Christ. This Christ-like not giving in to temptation bit only comes after the first bit. When we receive the mercy of God. Death overshadowed us. Fear overcame us. God's righteous judgment of our Adamic choices awaited us. But God hears our cries. In chapter 18 in Luke's Gospel, we read about the blind man sitting at the side of the road. He hears the buzz of the crowd going by and he asks, What's going on? What's happening out there? They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. I don't know what gave him the courage to do it. Maybe just feeling desperate. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. Religious types. But Luke says that he cried out, all the more. When people silence you, when you're crying out to, for mercy from God, cry out all the more because this is the reaction you will get. Jesus said, bring him to me. Bring him to me. He says, what do you want from me? He said, Lord, let me, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith 
has made you well. Romans 10, 14, whoever calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. If you call out to God, if you know that you're desperate, you need his mercy, call out to him, he will respond. He'll respond with compassion, say, come to me. Mercy, forgiveness, love. Maybe you never heard this before. Maybe you have only kind of heard this religious thing before where it says something along the lines of, I need to pull up my socks. I need to get myself together before I go along to church. We need to put that one to death, okay? Like if any of your friends say, I'm just like, I'm just not really there yet. Like maybe in a few years when I'm, you know, decided that I might kind of get myself together a bit more and then I can come along to church. No. <laughs> Would you just be bold enough in that situation and say, no, 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 flip that whole thing around because Jesus calls us now when we're desperate, when we're far away. And he comes to us and he's great mercy for us. True faith sits unashamed at the roadside screaming, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus will hear you. And turn to you and say what he always says. Your faith has made you well. God is a God of mercy. Paul in Ephesians 2 says this. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. What does that mean? Well, it means that as Christians, we're not more special. We were not less deserving of God's punishment. We deserved that. But... Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, not becoming rich in mercy, he is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Whoa. Not all of us will end up in caves. But we will all find, if we're honest, that we're dead in our transgressions and sins and deserving of wrath. But his mercy is yours. Cry out to God, he is rich in mercy. Who comes and says to us, Jesus comes and he says this to us. Look, how many times should someone be forgiven? He says, 77 times 77. I can't remember if I got that was number right. Is it 70 times 70? 70 times 7. 70 times 7. The perfect number multiplied. <laughs> in other words, it is an eternal number. In other words, he will continually show you mercy. We can be confident God will show mercy to us in the shadowy caves of death and sin. Mercy descends from God. And not only does mercy descend from God, but it rises in the resurrected. Here he is, Saul, the priest killer, ready to be killed. He deserves it. 
Imagine the headlines. Saul is gone. David is king. Long live the king. But David doesn't do it. He's merciful to Saul, to his enemy, who is desperate to do harm to him. Many of you uh, will probably be aware of the horrific case of Larry Nasser, the doctor for the US gymnastics team. He exploited and abused girls for years, using his position of power to sexually abuse and just cause all kinds of harm to young girls. Horrendous. Kind of guy that maybe you might think of like these men thought of Saul. Priest killer. The paedophile. Maybe you put them in a similar bracket. In 2018, when Larry Nasser was finally on trial, an extraordinarily brave young woman called Rachel Den Hollander gave this extraordinary testimony detailing everything that had happened to her. At the end of it, she says this. Should you ever reach the point of truly facing, this is what she's saying to him, she turns and says this to him. Should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done, the guilt will be crushing. And that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet. Because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found. And it will be there for you. I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend that to you as well. How can you be that strong? How can you offer forgiveness and the gospel and the mercy of God to someone who has done something so evil to you? What gave her the strength to confront her abuser and say that she wishes him to repent and receive mercy? What gave David the strength to refuse to take revenge and the throne from this evil king and forgive him? It's that the mercy of God has descended on them and now it rises in them. David displays God's heart again. Romans 5.10 says, While we were God's enemies, enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. And like God, whose mercy is full of action, perfectly displayed at the cross, David took action. Mercy and forgiveness are not just spoken in private. It starts there between us and God, but we must turn it to action. David runs out of the cave after Saul and he falls face down in the dirt. Puts himself in a position of humility. And he's crying out to one who has wronged him so much more than he has wronged him. But because his conscience before God is I must do the right thing here. And because he's received the mercy of God that he knows is guaranteed for him. He has the strength to cry out 
and look to be reconciled. If we look back at Ephesians 2, we see how we are to follow that pattern, like Rachel Den Hollander. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us, listen to this word, alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved, and God raised us up with Christ. He raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. The gospel message is more than just a future promise of new creation, of heaven. It is absolutely central to the Christian faith that we have that hope guaranteed when all things will be perfected, all tears will be dried, there will be no death, no suffering. Those will be the most wonderful days. We can't wait. And that's at the heart of the message. But do you know what? The resurrection begins now in us by the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, Jesus made it possible for us when he rose on the third day to be to raise us, the living dead, from our despair, from our darkness and take us into the light and transform us and make us new creations now and we can act in that like Rachel Del Hollander. We can act in that like David. The only way we can find strength to be truly merciful people, to love our enemies as Jesus commands, is to receive the mercy of God that he gave us while we still opposed him. And now, through resurrection life in us, we can be merciful. Jesus said, freely you have received, freely give. God's mercy produces beautiful, transforming mercy ministry on the earth. And it happens through us as people, the church. What is going on in your life right now where you know you haven't really forgiven such and such a person? Reflect on how much God has forgiven you. While you were still his enemy, he died for you. Let that be the the strength that you find. Because he didn't only die for you, he was resurrected three days later and then he went and he poured the spirit out on you so that you could be hidden in him, in Christ, so you could act like him. At the end of Hannah's prayer, at the beginning of 1 Samuel, we see this desperate cry that she makes. And she describes two kings. And actually it would be a great description of these two kings outside the cave. God would raise a king who would stand and choose mercy and find strength in the Lord. Instead of building his own kingdom and finding strength in himself. She said this, it is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. The Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Jesus, the son of David, would fulfill this prophetic song of Hannah's so that we can all cry out for mercy. So we can all Receive from the king enthroned in heaven, where mercy descends from, 
and so we can all become a people of mercy with the resurrected King, Christ in us, living in us. The hope of glory being lived out through our mercy and love.